Well, good morning to everyone joining us in Australia and good afternoon to our Sangha friend in the United States. And we have a visitor here in the Zendo from Tucson, Arizona, so we are very fortunate. In the mornings in Zazen, we chant the Heart Sutra in English one day and then Japanese the other, alternating. And afterwards, the Doan leads a dedication. And uh, in that dedication, we recite the names of some of our ancestors. So today, I'm going to speak a little bit about a few of those ancestors that we dedicate the merit of our chanting to. But the chant starts like this, and I'll just speak it. Looking upward, we deeply wish for Buddha's true compassion. Bowing down, we ask for the illumination of Buddha's understanding. Now that we have chanted the great Heart of Perfect Wisdom Sutra, we offer this merit with highest gratitude to our great original teacher, Shakyamuni Buddha, our first woman ancestor, great teacher Maha Pajapati, our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma, our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher Ehei Dogen, our first ancestor in the West, great teacher Shogaku Shunru. And the dedication continues. So I'd like to talk a little bit about Mahapajapati today and uh, Bodhidharma, and then next week speak a little about Dogen Zenji and Shogaku Shunru Suzuki Roshi. So the chant begins with, Looking upward, we deeply wish for Buddha's true compassion. And then bowing down. So there's something beautiful just in the the imagery in the beginning of this dedication, looking upward, uh, creates a, a, a feeling of sort of humility, reverence, possibly even slightly childlike, the way a child looks up at a parent, but also how any of us would look up toward a mentor, someone that we respect. So we're looking upward, wishing for Buddha's true compassion. I was speaking to someone this morning about compassion and uh, also words like kindness. And in Zen, there is a kind of a non-sentimental quality to compassion and kindness. it's, It's not a sentimental kind of compassion. It's not an emotionally charged compassion. And in, uh, maybe one way to think about it a little bit is if we think about the lungs and the blood, the lungs breathe, the oxygen comes in, it goes into the blood and is carried to the muscles. So that, re- that relationship of the oxygen going into the lungs, into the blood and into the muscles, you could say that's kind of like a compassionate action that's occurring, but it's not personal It's not sentimental. It's just natural. It's got like no trace related to it. There's no drama involved in it. There's no self involved in it. The lungs aren't thinking that they're great. 
the blood isn't thinking that it's great. But nevertheless, there's this life-affirming movement happening. So that's the kind of compassion that we wish for, to receive and to give. Bowing down, we ask for the illumination of Buddha's understanding. So in the first, we, sort of, we imagine the eyes looking upward, and in the second, the eyes looking downward, bowing in reverence. That We wish to be illuminated, to know the Buddha's teaching ourselves. So then we say, now that we have chanted the Heart of Great Perfect Wisdom Sutra, we offer this merit with gratitude, with highest gratitude to our great original teacher, Shakyamuni Buddha. Um, And so this year we'll be doing Rohatsu Seshin in December where traditionally we talk about, we go through the life of the Buddha. So I won't talk about Shakyamuni Buddha today. Uh, because we'll be doing that in some detail day by day during Rohatsu. So I'll speak a little bit about our first woman ancestor, great teacher Mahapajapati. When the Buddha was born, he was born into a, a royal family and he was referred to as Prince Siddhartha. And uh, his mother passed away when he was seven days old. And her name was Maya. And so her sister, Mahapajapati, or just Pajapati at that time, raised him as her own along with her other children. And she obviously did a very skillful and loving job (laughs) to raise someone who became our great teacher. So she was his, sort of his mother. She was also his aunt because she was the sister of his mother. And she was married to the king as well. So she was also his stepmother. And then later, of course, she became his disciple. And it's quite common for women in the um, history of Buddhism to often be in relationship to some of the male figures. And I think this is partly because it was one of the ways that women could participate was through their relationships as wife or daughter or mother, cousin or aunt or sibling. It's one of the ways they were able to enter into the Dharma. And it might also be that the way in which women historically were perceived was difficult for people to think of them as standing independently, wholeheartedly independently in their own right. They're often seen as being in relationship. Uh, So maybe too there's a tendency to refer to their relationships to other uh, figures. We don't so often hear of ancestors being referred to as the brother of or the husband of just doesn't happen hardly at all. But this is, this is what we've inherited and so um, 
our first woman ancestor is Mahapajapati. And she's said to have lived to the age of 120 and to have had 500 nuns uh, with her in the nunneries that she established. So I'll read a little bit from The Hidden Lamp, a compilation of awakened women's stories uh, edited by Florence Kaplow and Susan Moon. And this, is not, this is not an awakening story of Mahapajapati, but it's the story of how she came to, uh, how the Buddha came to be willing to ordain her. Mahapajapati was the aunt and foster mother of the Buddha and a queen of the Shakyas. Many women turned to her for counsel when their husbands and sons left to join the Buddhist, Buddha's order. She was the first to ask the Buddha if women could ordain. The Buddha replied, don't set your heart on this. She asked two more times and received the same answer. She departed in tears. Later, Mahapajapati and 500 women cut off their hair, put on saffron-coloured robes and walked barefoot for hundreds of miles to where the Buddha was teaching. Weeping, they stood outside the gates. Ananda saw them there and asked Mahapajapati, Why are you crying? She said, Because the Buddha does not permit women to ordain. Ananda went to Buddha and said, Your aunt is standing outside with swollen feet, covered in dust, crying because you do not permit women to ordain. It would be good, Lord, if women had permission to ordain. The Buddha replied, Enough, Ananda. Don't set your heart on this. Ananda asked two more times to no avail. Then he asked, Are women able, Lord, to realise the full fruits of the way, even our hardship? Yes, Ananda, they are. Since women are able to realise perfection, surely it would be good if women were allowed to ordain. Hearing this, the Buddha relented, and the Sangha of women was born. So that's the story. And there's some comments here by Thanissaro. She's a former Theravadan nun and she teaches all around the world, quite well-known teacher of meditation and Buddhism. And here's some comments from her. What is this story? Why is it so? It's the story of Mahapajapati setting her heart. It's the story of the Buddha's refusal of Mahapajapati and it's the story of the Buddha's acceptance of Mahapajapati. As we engage the story, we're invited to fathom this set heart of Mahapajapati, and in doing so, to discover our own set heart. This is an interesting sort of moment to reflect on what set heart means for, our, for us. It feels like there's a certain point at which people are enter uh, a sangha, sangha life and uh, meditating regularly and maybe meet a teacher, and at a certain point, uh, a kind of uh, a momentum arrives or a conviction arrives and our heart is set. We have found our home. This is what we are doing. And doubt just drops away. And our heart is set on awakening, on realizing the Dharma.
on doing our practice, being benefit, being a benefit in the world. So Maha Pajapati, clearly her heart was set. She and 500 other women walked hundreds of miles to beg to be ordained. And the Buddha had said, said to her, don't set your heart on this. The Buddha's reluctant transmission of ordination to Mahapajapati became a flower garland of difficulty falling upon her shoulders. That's an interesting phrase. A flower garland of difficulty fell upon her shoulders. Uh, because when women were allowed to ordain, they then also inherited a whole bunch of difficulties. They had extra precepts they had to follow. There were things they weren't allowed to do. And you can imagine the frustration they must have felt. Frustration and sadness and confusion that on one side the teachings were saying, all beings can awaken, all beings uh, have Buddha nature. And yet here was restrictions being placed on them. So she inherited a garland of flowers of difficulty and that has gone on, of course, for hundreds of years and is really, maybe only now, really lifting. Certainly Zen in the West has made enormous changes and progress in being inclusive, not just of women, but recognising that all sorts of differences are not barriers to the Dharma. So it goes on to say that even with these difficulties, even so, the moment the Buddha ordained her, she joyfully took the path of the ochre robe, leading the way for others who followed through the centuries with strength beyond telling. In spite of this ambivalent legacy, we celebrate the Buddha's acceptance of a women's order, thanks to Mahapajapati. We also thank Ananda, who demonstrated that a monk can be a true ally of nuns. I really like that smiling face in the, in the margin that Ananda demonstrated that a monk can be a true ally of nuns. And we can, of course, be allies ourselves. This is a few other stories about her. This was just an inspiring quote I came across. Of all the Buddha's great disciples, Mahapajapati Gautami is the only one whom legend whom legend describes as the counterpart of the Tathagata himself. As an elderly woman, she became a zealous follower, attained enlightenment upon hearing just a brief discourse on Dharma and founded the first order of Buddhist nuns. It's also said that she was able to remember many of her past lives, which is also what the story is of the Buddha, that under the Bodhi tree he in a flash, remembered every life he had ever lived. So here's just a few of her past lives that she recalls. She was once born in the time of Buddha Padumutara and witnessed him appointing a woman to a principal position and this inspired her to aspire to achieve the same. And I think this is an interesting thing too that... Uh, whether you think about it in terms of past lives or just past moments or other lives, it doesn't really matter. Each thing we do 
influences and affects other, other people and other events, and we don't know about it most of the time. So here she witnessed a teacher appointing a woman to a position, and that sparked a light in her. And we can be that for other people. Without even knowing it, we can be doing things that other people look at and go, ooh, I'd like to be like that. Or, ooh, that is possible. Another life, she was born a slave near Deer Park in Varanasi, where the Buddha taught. One of the ancient Buddhas had asked the lay people to help build retreat huts, but many of them refused, especially the wealthy. I noticed there was a theme in some of these stories about the wealthy being particularly unhelpful. <laughs> so, so she led 500 women slaves to help build the huts. This good deed helped Mahapajapati to be born at the same time as Shakyamuni Buddha and for the 500 women who were slaves to be born at the same time as her to become her future monks and nuns. I think that's rather lovely. And one other story of a past life she remembers. She was born a weaver's wife near Varanasi and when the rich people refused to make offerings to the Buddha, she took the lead and organised making the offerings even though she was of modest means. So we can think of her as a symbol of resilience in the face of resistance and adversity. All of us face our own kinds of adversities and our own resistances, whether they're internally generated or externally generated. So she can be a symbol for us of that sort of resilience and having a set heart and a determination. And that all people can awaken. It doesn't matter what your capacity, rich or poor, clever or dull, male or female, of one culture or another, one capacity or another. It just takes a willingness and a conviction to set your heart. So that's just a little about Mahapajapati. So when we're chanting in the morning and on Tuesday evenings, maybe that dedication will have a little flavor to it, a little added flavor, thinking a little about her life. So uh, I'll speak a little too about Bodhidharma. legendary figure from the 5th or 6th century and we have a, a picture of him up above our altar. He's often depicted as kind of gruff with a beard and big eyes, big bulging eyes. And rather than telling some of the familiar stories that many of us probably are familiar with about him, I thought I would read a little bit from the record of Transmitting the Light. Keizan's Denko Roku, translated by Francis Cook. Read a little from here. Just a different aspect of Bodhidharma. His relationship to his teacher. 
Prashnatara. And in here he's referred to as the Master, and before he was named Bodhidharma, his previous name was Bodhitara. So he's referred to as the Master and Bodhitara in this, this text here. The Master was a member of the warrior ruler class, and his name was originally Bodhitara. He was the third son of the king of Koshi in southern India. The king's respect for the Buddha Dharma was above the ordinary. Once he gave Prajnatara a precious jewel of alms. The king had three sons, of which Bodhitara was one. The venerable Prajnatara wanted to test the wisdom of the princes. He showed them the jewel he had been given and asked, Does anything compare with this jewel? Like it was a, literally a jewel. The first two sons said, This jewel is the most precious of the seven treasures, and truly nothing can surpass it. No one without the venerable's power of the way could receive it. The third son, Bodhitara, said, This is a worldly treasure and still does not qualify as the best. I consider the treasure of the Dharma to be the best of treasures. The light of this jewel is a worldly light and still does not qualify as the best. I consider the light of wisdom to be the best of lights. This is a worldly brightness and still does not qualify as the best. I consider the brightness of mind to be the best of all brightnesses. Bright light of this jewel cannot illuminate itself but needs the light of wisdom in order for it to be discerned. Once you thoroughly discern, discern it, you know it is a jewel. Once you know it is a jewel, then you clarify the fact that it is precious. When you clarify the fact that it is precious, its preciousness is not itself precious. When you discern the jewel, the jewel is not itself a jewel. The jewel's not being a jewel is because it is necessary to use the jewel of wisdom in order to discern the worldly jewel. The preciousness not being itself precious is because it is necessary to use the treasure of wisdom to clarify the treasure of the Dharma. Because the Master's way is the treasure of wisdom, you now experience this worldly treasure. Thus, when the Master has the way, this treasure appears. And when beings have the way, this treasure appears. When beings have the way, the treasure of mind also appears. When the Venerable heard this explanation, he knew a sage had been born. He discerned that Bodhitara would become a Dharma successor, but the time was not yet ripe. So he remained silent and let Bodhitara remain with the others. Later he asked him, what among all things is formless? The master replied, non-arising is formless. The venerable asked, what among all things is the greatest? The master replied, the true nature of things is the greatest. Even though they questioned and answered in this way, and the minds of master and disciple merged, Prajnatara waited a while for the complete maturing of Bodhitara. And then it goes on to speak a little of how uh, Bodhitara's father passed away and how he sat in samadhi by his father's, uh, I think they call it a bier, a bier, which is like the platform that the coffin sits on. 
And then uh, Prajnatara ordained him and he studied with him for 40 years. And then after Prajnatara passed away, then we hear the, the classic stories that we know of Bodhidharma taking three years to cross the seas to China, meeting with the Emperor Wu. Uh, just the famous dialogue with Emperor Wu, where Emperor Wu says to him, what is the highest meaning of the holy truths? And Bodhidharma says, empty, nothing holy. And the emperor says, who are you facing me? And Bodhidharma says, don't know. The emperor did not understand. And then Bodhidharma crossed the Yangtze River where he went to Shaolin and faced the wall for nine years. Uh, he taught, uh, his focus of, of teaching was on meditation and the Lankavatara Sutra, which are sort of the Yogacara teachings on mind only or the, the primacy of consciousness, and Buddha nature, Buddha nature teachings, the third turning of the Dharma wheel. So that's just a little of two of the ancestors that we include in our morning dedication. I hope that maybe will help when you hear that dedication in the mornings and in the evenings. Uh, help it be inspiring for your practice.